You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. The night has become electrified. Mid-evening May comes to my room. The turn of doorknob, click of bolt in hasp. The opening door casts a wedge of yellow hall light against the wall. Her slender, dark hand twists the switch and closes the door. Not a word spoken. The brutal light is message enough. A clear glass bulb hangs in the center of the room from a cord of brown woven cloth. New wires run down the wall in an ugly metal conduit. The bare bulb's little blazing filament burns an angry cloverleaf shape onto my eyeballs that will last until dawn. It's either get up and shut off the electricity and light a candle to read by or else be blinded. I get up and turn off the light. Charles Frazier won the National Book Award in 1997 for his first novel, Cold Mountain. His new novel is 13 Moons. Welcome to the program, Charles. Thank you. Charles, your new novel is a novel of change across a big chunk of time. And you have a lot of really interesting perceptions of this change. So... First off, t- just could you set up the story for us? It's about uh, a man you call Will Cupper. It starts out when um, uh, Will is about 12 years old. He's been sent out as a bound boy to run a trading post at the edge of Indian Territory. This is in the early 19th century. He's adopted into that small group at Cherokee, and from that point forward, for most of a century, his life is tied up with the life of this group of people. One of the things that interests me is the different ways we perceive change, and you show this so well in the book, at different ages in our lives. Tell me a little bit about how you discovered that in yourself and how you conveyed that in your words. Well, I mean, there, there's a lot about change in Will's life in this book and also a lot about change in the life of the country Uh, over the span of his life. He goes from being a a very innocent kid living way out at the edge of the wilderness in what was was frontier in America at that time, right along the crest of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, Goes from there to to being able to handle himself as a lobbyist in Washington, a colonel in the Civil War, a white chief of the Cherokee, and and also a a senator. So um, he has to make a lot of changes and the country at the time was going through enormous changes as the, as the native peoples were, uh, as their cultures were being threatened with extinction and, uh, and our culture was, was covering the continent. One of the things that interests me about this book is the way that you, one, one of the focal points of the book is the Trail of Tears, but it happens off stage, and I'm wondering... Why did you make the decision to, to do it that way? When there were stockades that the Indians were collected into and then sent from the stockades out uh, to Indian territory on the Trail of Tears, and the last you see of it in the book is as the stockade doors open and they leave, it felt to me like that was not my story to tell. Once, once it left my piece of country, the territory where I grew up, and the story I was trying to tell focused on that that little piece of the world, then it felt like that was uh, that was somebody else's story to to go into from that point forward. Let's ratchet back a little bit. Your first novel, 
Cold Mountain was drawn largely from your family, was it not? Is that the case? Yeah, there was uh, the the origin of that book was in a a little bit of family history. Tell me a little bit about that piece of family history. Well, my father was working. He had recently retired at that point and was working on a family history. And I was home visiting one weekend, and he told me this story about uh, a great-great-uncle who um, had been wounded badly near Petersburg and uh, had uh, had walked home rather than, than go back to fighting once he had healed up some and then was killed in a gunfight uh, with the home guard when he got back. So uh, within just a matter of days, I was starting to to think about what kind of novel that might make and put some pieces together and begin writing some little bits to to see what it would be like and it it uh, you know it felt like a felt like a very basic outline for a for a novel and I just moved forward from there. One of the things you did with that novel that was really interesting is to layer two different types of of myths the 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 Greek myth of Odysseus there's a, an Odyssean Odyssey feel yeah. to this but also the the myths of our understanding of the civil war and tell me a little bit about how it felt to mingle those two as you wrote and researched well the uh, the odyssey element of the book it was partly just my way of feeling comfortable with writing about the civil war because i'm not I'm not enormously interested in the Civil War, in the battles and generals and all that strategy. Uh, but once I realized that the book I was going to write was going to be an Odyssey instead of an Iliad, it was about leaving the war and trying to find home and peace uh, instead of fighting the war, then I felt like I could move forward with it. The other element of the question involves the, you know, just the mytholo- the American mythology of the Civil War. And that's something that's always interested me and that I find fairly off-putting, that kind of glamorization of Lee and Stonewall Jackson, you know, just the fact that there's a shrine to Stonewall Jackson's uh, amputated arm is, uh, you know, in this kind of religious relic kind of thing in, in Virginia. Uh, I've always found, uh, found that uh, odd and amusing and uh, didn't want to... Uh, didn't want any of that kind of uh, of romanticizing and mythologizing of the Civil War and its leaders in my book. With your new book, Thirteen Moons, is it based on a, a family history, or is this something you had to? How did it feel to do something different? If indeed you did something different. Well, it's it's based on a a bit of uh, of local history from from where I grew up. Um, lots of people know about the Trail of Tears, but I think it's. It's not as well known that there was this small group of Cherokee who managed to to resist being removed, and they were the beginning of the Eastern Band of Cherokee. That they kept their home; uh, they they're still there, and uh, those people have been my neighbors since I was a kid. So I wanted partly to tell uh, to tell the story of how how they came to um, to to remain there, and. and- when you started doing this, how did you undertake to research this book? Oh, lots of different ways. One one of the things this this involved a good bit of primary documents of going to to army reports and things like that. Like for example, um, every Cherokee household that was emptied out of its people, every little farm, the army kept 
records of all their possessions, all the way down to how many spoons they owned. So you could uh, you could go th- farm by farm, and uh, and look at this accounting of all their possessions and have a sense of um, a sense of the life in that place from the the material culture of of the place. And I realized when I looked at it that uh, that the Cherokee at that time were living almost identically to my ancestors 50 miles away. That's one of the fascinating things about the, this novel is the portrait of the Cherokee. They, they live like the, the rich, the best of them live like the rich white owners with huge plantations and, and houses. Yeah, there were, there were uh, Cherokee people on the, on the Cherokee Nation who owned plantations that were as fine as anything in, uh, you know, in Georgia or Alabama or Mississippi, owned slaves. Um, a, a significant percentage of people on the Trail of Tears were African Americans. Wow, that's really fascinating. So where did you find these primary sources? I mean, where, when you found these, these account, army accountings, where did you find them? In, in your local libraries or... Um, I think that particular thing I found at, uh, in the rare books uh, room at, uh, at University of North Carolina. Um, I, d- I do a lot of work in, in North Carolina libraries. In North Carolina, presumably, is where you reside. Yeah, yeah, part of the year. One of the things that, that I found really interesting is the way you work in the historical figures into this, that they don't figure at the center of the picture, but you work them in nicely on the side. So tell me a little bit about how you mix the fictional and the non-fictional and how you decide what proportion of what gets where. Well, it's one of those difficult decisions in a way uh, of how to use the historical material and to what extent you're bound by it. But I... I pretty much uh, uh, work off the proposition that my first obligation is to the fictional world, to the story, the characters, the settings, uh, and that um, and that the history is just a background for that, and um, that I that I will um, I will change history if I need to for the good of the the story. I I try not to, but I, there was a I was doing a. Um, uh, a sort of a class at the Smithsonian Institute on historical fiction a few years ago, and a woman said, uh, stood up and asked to ask a question. Said she thought that she knew, uh, or that her husband thought he knew, where in Cold Mountain I started making things up. Exa- the exact page, she said. And I said, well, I'll, I'll tell you where I started making things up, and then you tell me where your husband thinks I started making things up. And I said, I started on page one. Uh, I'm a novelist. And she said, uh, oh, well, never mind. <laughs> One of the things I think you do really well is is to create a world that's very different from ours. It's almost like an alien world. Everything is completely different. And I wonder if you'd care to talk about this this process of, of building a world out of prose that's that's not ours, yet is an am- our world is that future. Yeah, I mean, it, it, when you're writing a historical novel, that's part of what you're doing is creating this world that I don't know uh, directly. Nobody in the audience knows directly. 
uh, my goal is to make it feel real. Uh, but I, I tend to think of it almost like like writing a science fiction novel, that you're that you're developing this world. You want to make it have really thick texture. You want people to to believe it. Uh, but it's a creation. It's a it's it's. A, um, you know, you're 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 trying to make a reader believe this world that you're just creating out of imagination and some historical research. It's interesting that you mentioned science fiction because that's in a way that's how it read to me in, in because of some of the surreal and supernatural touches that you pour in to this world. And I'd like to ask you about those. Of course, the the one that stands out is is Granny Squirrel, and, and this, yeah. she's a really fascinating character. Tell us a little bit about how you created this this character, who she is within the book. Yeah, she's uh, she's a, a Cherokee healer who um, uh, claims she's really really old, you know, a couple of hundred years old, um, and she's based on um, she's based on a good bit of reading about uh, about. Cherokee spiritualism, Cherokee medicine, those kinds of things, um, and and little things like a, a one of the first uh, uh, the first times that a census was taken of the Cherokee, there were several people who claimed to be two hundred years old, so that gave me the start of Granny Squirrel as a two hundred year old woman. It's really fascinating, and you also people this world with. Giant lizards, uh, le- huge leeches in the in the in the creeks. Do you did you do find all these uh, legends in the stuff you looked at, or did you create them? Or but the, those two things are Cherokee, Cherokee folklore, myth, and legend. Um, but when I was a kid, the valley where I where I grew up. Um, the river that ran through the valley. There was a deep hole in the river that uh, the Cherokee believed this giant leech, the size of an oxen, lived down there in that that hole. And there was a bald on top of one of the mountains, which uh, you know is just a, a mountain top with no trees growing on it, and it's sort of, they're sort of mysterious places. And the Cherokee believed that there were that, that there was a giant lizard that lived on the bald that I could see from my backyard when I was a kid. When you're creating these kind of supernatural, and, and there's also some really interesting surreal touches too, there's a, a scene where two people walk into Will's store and they just look at him and they don't see say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Did this happen to you in some previous life? Uh, I don't. I have. I don't remember where that scene came from, other than I, I was probably thinking about. Uh, I used to go to. Um, to, to Peru a lot and and do uh, do treks up in the Andes and I could, I just remember the awkwardness of trying to communicate with people uh, with uh, with people who spoke Quechua and a little bit of Spanish and I spoke English and a little bit of Spanish and and how often these awkward silences ensued. That brings to mind the subject of language, which is central to this novel. Tell us a little bit about the, the what a syllabary is. Well, uh, the the Cherokee syllabary is uh, uh, was developed by Sequoia, 
And he just, he analyzed the language and realized um, that if he made a symbol for each sound of the language, that, um, that people who already knew the language just had to match the symbols with the sounds to become literate. And it was, it was an amazing thing that, um, that people in the Cherokee Nation went from being illiterate to literate in two or three days. And uh, within, uh, within months, people all over the Cherokee Nation were able to read their own newspaper that they printed. They wrote letters back and forth to each other. Um, it was, a, it was a, a brilliant and amazing uh, uh, piece of work that he did. It creates a phenomenal change in the civilization, too, and this gets back to the passage of time because when you can write things down, you can fix that time, that moment of time, yeah. and it doesn't change. So how did this change the Cherokee civilization? Well, you know, I think that um, uh, I, Bear at some point in the book, uh, the character Bear, who's who's the adopted father of, uh, of Will Cooper, um, says talks about stories and history and that um, you know that that history is just stories somebody somebody gets to make it up and uh, and when you uh, when you go from an oral tradition to a written tradition the transmission of those stories change changes and um, so that, that's part of what I was working with with uh, the syllabary and and then bear as a an oral storyteller and you have a lot of fun with the writers and the stories and the versions of stories that, that happened, in particular Charlie's story, and also later on in the novel when various writers approach Will in, in his as he's approaching his dotage. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about this, you know, a game of telephone, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, at the, at the, after the uh, conclusion of the, of the Charlie story, uh, which is a very important story to the to the Eastern Band of Cherokee. Uh, it's it's part of how they came to stay there. This um, um, this man and his family um, agreeing to come down to to uh, they'd been hiding in the mountains, resisting the removal on the Trail of Tears. Um, ended up killing some soldiers. And finally, there was a deal struck that if they would come down and the men would be executed, uh, then, then other elements of the, the Eastern Band could stay. And uh, that story has been told in many different ways. It's been mythologized. It's been told as a kind of, uh, of, of savior sacrifice story. Uh, in the book, Will and Bear have this conversation where they realize that somebody is gonna is gonna tell that story and that it's gonna shape the way it's seen in the future and they decide that it doesn't exactly matter if they get all the details right as long as it makes a good story and so they make up a good story and then that's what they tell the journalists who come through wanting to know about it and this of course is a microcosm for your process of making the novel itself yeah Tell us a little bit about the Eastern Cherokee, because it's a very fascinating story that, as you say, most of us, I sure as heck didn't know anything about it, about how they came to hold their land. Yeah, it was, it was a, a wonderful irony. The, the, the uh, uh, ancestors, the origin of the Eastern Band, were the most traditional, the most full-blood Cherokee. 
um, over on the Cherokee Nation. They were living just off the nation. Over on the Cherokee Nation, you had those Cherokee that owned owned slaves and plantations and were more Scotch than they were uh, than they were than they were Indian. Um, but by this odd little quirk of history, the most traditional of the Cherokee found a way to stay, and the most assimilated were sent off to the territories. And the key to it was this very alien concept of ownership of property, private ownership of property. It was, it was a, a, not a part of Cherokee culture, but the leader of, uh, uh, of this, this group of Cherokee understood that he could make it work to, to their advantage. There really was a, an analog to, to Will Cupper. And tell us a little bit about this, this man and how you transformed him into Will and what you did to make your story. Yeah, a guy named William Holland Thomas who went out into Indian Territory at, at age 12 or 13 and, and his life was tied up with the Indians uh, for, for many decades afterwards. So I used, uh, I used bits and pieces of his life the very bare outline of my character's life follows William Holland Thomas's. All the empty spaces in there I filled up with, uh, with made-up stuff. Now, was there really this complicated set of deeds and land ownership that, that you describe in the book? Because it's really interesting, and it, it leads to one of the changes, the, the way that commerce itself is it's, as a kind of technology and this gets back to this science fictional aspect of this book that I find really interesting, is that you portray the coming of a new technology and, and how people who have never encountered it before use it to their advantage. The traditional Cherokee value was that the land was owned by everybody, or not even owned, that's, that's the wrong word to use, uh, that you used what you needed. You didn't own it, you used it, and what was defined as need was was pretty limited you know a little a little cabin an orchard some you know some kitchen gardens um, and then and then Europeans came along settlers came along with this notion of owning property uh, having deeds the, you know applying the legal system to to land itself the the Cherokee a lot of Native American groups had a hard time with that, uh, with that concept for that period of of, of first uh, first contact with European cultures. But uh, but there was a a leader of the Eastern Band of Cherokee named Yanaguska, and uh, and he he understood that uh, that while it was a a foolish notion that they could use private property, the ownership of private property to their advantage if they held deeds to their land, then maybe they would get to stay. One of the things you also talk about is the swamp that was really never been drained to this day, and that's Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah Will uh, we'll makes a trip up there in the, the 1830s when Washington was, uh, was very much a work in progress, a, a very muddy, messy, um, raw kind of kind of town. He loves a lot about the excitement of it and hates a lot of uh, a lot of it too. 
ends up in the White House with a, a little confrontation with Andrew Jackson. I mean, the way business was conducted back then, it's really not that different from the way it was. It is now. <laughs> and, and I found yeah. it fascinating. Did you, you looked into that, presumably. I mean, tell us, where did you find that information? Oh, I read all kinds of things. Um, letters and journals of people who were in Washington at that time, um, travelers who passed through Washington. I remember a particularly good good book of uh, either journals or letters by the wife of a senator, uh, t- just talking about the social life of Washington at that period. All of that kind of thing helps you build that texture of a, of a created uh, historical place and time. Books and reading also play a great part in this in this novel. Will is a is a great reader. He's always got books. He's always reading books, and, and he's also a very interested in stories. And that comes back to when he in Bear create the the story of Charlie. So, uh, but I find it kind of interesting that 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 uh, a twelve year old kid would could get books. Did did his namesake get books up there or? Um, I, I'm sure that he did. The I guess the the origin of that of a of a kid way back in the the uh, back country being able to get uh, to get you know the the complete plays of Shakespeare and romantic poets and all that was uh, another one of those little bits of research. I found the um, the inventory of a trading post. And was amazed that along with things like plow points and, um, you know, just bits of horse tack and tools and implements, that this store also sold an awful lot of uh, French champagne and had quite a collection of, of books for sale. Wow, that's really fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't what I expected. I would imagine. And, and this gets down to some of the things of, of one of the ways that you make this book really wonderful are all the details. First off, have you eaten rattlesnake? Does it really taste like chicken? (laughs) I have not eaten rattlesnake. Um, The last time I was around cooked rattlesnake, I wasn't wasn't entirely sure of of how it had been kept before it was cooked. But but somebody who was eating it said, said, yep, they say it tastes like chicken, and it does. Well, you have lots of interesting details. For example, the, there's just gorgeous, almost poetic uh, passages describing the different kinds of money that people had back then. We live in a culture where everybody has, you know, either money, one kind of money, or checks. So it's interesting to see the the variety of money. Where where did you learn about all that? Oh, just more of that. More of that. Uh, going to the library, thinking about that. Thinking about that time and place that, um, you know, the states had their own money, that silver and gold was valuable, whether it was, you know, whether it was, um, whether it was from Europe or South America or wherever, and that people used anything, uh, any kind of current, any kind of money that was of, of value. I loved uh, finding out that, you know, that like a, a, a silver piece of money or gold would be cut into pieces that was really interesting and it would be like a you know an eighth of a of a whatever or a you know just 
little pieces of it would be would be currency as well. And, and while we're speaking of pieces of things, the other thing that I found really interesting was the the way that uh, racial divisions were uh, perceived back then. It was scary. So yeah. tell us a little bit about yeah. how that worked. Well, in in many states in the South, uh, there were there were legal um, distinctions uh, for racial quantities down to one thirty second. There were words for for uh, amount of dark blood, all the way down to one thirty second, and you know defining anybody who uh, who had elements of Native American or African American blood um, as non-white uh, all the way down to those fine fractions. And I was interested in those, those, um, those issues of racial identity, cultural identity, uh, and the changes that were, that were happening at the time related to those. Well, and it was also interesting, and you brought this up a little bit earlier, but I want to pursue it, the idea that many of the Indians were actually largely Scottish, Irish. Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. Well, the you know that little bit of, of the southern Appalachians, western North Carolina, eastern Tennessee, north Georgia, um, a lot of Scott traders came up from Charleston to do business with the Cherokee, in the in the early uh, 18th century, and many of those of those Scott traders then had what they call country wives, and over time you ended up with um, a situation where the head chief of the Cherokee, the whole Cherokee Nation at the time of removal, was uh, three fourths Scott, didn't speak Cherokee, didn't like to be around people who did speak Cherokee because it made him uncomfortable. With all these details that, that you create, and, and as you're weaving this world with your language, one of the things you do very well is you'll present us with a beautifully poetic piece of description. And, and what happens is we start to see the present percolating up through the past as you describe it. And I want to know, does that happen bef Do you, as you start out the passage, do you think this passage is going to be have a a point, or do you discover the, that as you write? Oh, I, I rarely have a plan when I write. <laughs> it's, uh, and I don't know, I know writers who, um, by the time they have an outline for a, for a book, done, they're three quarters of the way done. It's such a detailed thing. Uh, my, you know, my, my sense is I like to discover everything as I'm working. And uh, if I've got uh, a handful of, uh, of of things that I know I want to be in a book, then every every paragraph is, uh, you know, I'm out there in my office finding out what's going to happen in that paragraph. So you don't outline your books, or no? Okay, interesting. I, you know, I know with Cold Mountain I had five things that I knew I knew were were parts of what had happened to that ancestor of mine, and that that made a story. With this one, I knew about four or five things that um, that I, I knew I wanted to cover: the removal of the Cherokee and the Charlie story, um, being the the central element of it. But then you then I then I just want to want to find that let these connections just happen as the as the book uh, evolves. 
Because it takes me a long time to write a book, so there's plenty of time for that to, to happen. It seems that you have this world that you just have a, a lot of fun exploring. Well, I, I, love, uh, I love the research part of it. I mean, research is, a, is sort of a, an odd word to use for spending a day in the library, you know, reading about interesting things. I'd say a good half of what I collect in, in that kind of work never gets used in the book. I just I enjoy it, and it's a very, very inefficient process for me. Tell us a little bit about. I, I want to get back to this idea of technology and change because you you that seems to be a very strong theme in here. And, and there's different. What's interesting is that the the things that these people, the people in this book, perceive of as technology, we we don't even don't even nearly rise to that level for us. And so I'm wondering how you manage to create within yourself the ability to perceive something as, you know, a technology, something as somewhat foreign and unfamiliar that to us is, is beyond, beneath notice almost. I would like, give, give me an example. Wow. Well, like some of the, uh, the idea of commerce, the, the way they deal oh. with the money, yeah. um, and, and even accounting. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, a lot of that is just is just thinking about the kind of life, a kind of subsistence life, where money doesn't really enter into it very much. That uh, if you if you're living on a little farm, and you're raising or hunting for and gathering almost everything you need to live then, then uh, money and all the things that go with money um, aren't really a, a, a significant feature of your thinking or your day-to-day life. And, and so it's just sort of trying to get yourself into that kind of frame of mind and that set of values. And it's, it's hard for any of us to, to do that now. One of the things that this novel seems to do it, 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 is it addresses a lot of issues and ideas that we're exploring today, right now. And, and there's this sense of, of the present percolating up out of the past. And, and I'm wondering, when is that something you discover? Or, or do you, once you kind of sense the, 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 get the sense, do you follow that? Well, to some degree, but I think it's just just fairly natural it, that a writer working on a historical novel, a, you know, a novel set in the past, that the book is really going to be as much about now as about then, because that's that's your that's your now is your your world. That's the world you know that. I mean, it always has felt to me like, for example, Scarlet Letter, or you know, that that the big historical novels of American literature are as much about the time they were written, and in that case, uh, the 1860s, as about the Puritan past um, of the 17th century. And th- this is in much the way m- when you talk to science fiction writers, many of them will say the same thing that it's set in the future, but it's really about the present. Yeah. And this gets back to that. I, 
one thing that I found kind of interesting was this idea of the how civilized the the Indians were with the, with the the houses the the tea trays the settings yeah. I mean they they were living at this idea of the noble savage which you talk a little bit about that's even at the, at that point that was completely that was largely erased wasn't it yeah at the at the time this this book begins the cherokee had been in contact with white people for uh, for going on a couple of centuries and much of their of their culture was rapidly disappearing um, the clan system um, was was really fading fast their justice system, which was part of the clan system, uh, was falling apart, and they were they were very quickly adopting our our ways, largely with the understanding, and they'd been they'd been told this by Washington and Jefferson and and other presidents, that the way for them to continue to live where they lived was to become as much like us as possible, and they had become a great deal like us, and we still decided we couldn't live alongside them. One of the, the pulls through both your novels uh, are love stories. And, and I, I'm wondering how you, as a, as a writer, develop this to, to, as, a, as a pulling mechanism to pull, pull the reader and pull the character through. And how you place that love story in in the historical context and make sure that it develops in a, in a manner that works within the story and the history. I'm always interested in characters who are who are yearning for a connection, for for connections with place, with community, with other people, with you know, and and uh, and and love is just. Uh, the primary one of those uh, uh, yearnings, and Will is uh, you know Will's got responsibilities to uh, this group of people. He's got uh, uh, a, a great deal of feeling for them, and he's also got this very personal connection to a woman named Claire that he's known since he was twelve, and uh, um, and in in a lot of cases those two. Uh, those two kinds of yearning are in conflict with each other. His responsibilities to, to the people that he, uh, that he feels obligated to, and and uh, and his own personal sense of of just wanting to be with Claire. Your your novels also really inhabit a landscape, and the landscape that they move through, that your characters move through, is is itself a character with within the novel, and I. Presumably, this is where you live, and, and you spend a lot of time connected with your landscape. So tell me, how do you draw your own personal connections to the landscape within which you live, which is also undergoing a lot of change, yeah. with, the, with the landscapes that you portray back in history? Well, I mean, I love books that, uh, that have a real sense of place, a, a really thick texture of place. Um, and my place is uh, is Western North Carolina, the Southern Appalachians. Uh, I was born there, still live there. Um, so um, so I just try to be as um, as local as I can be 
in uh, in developing a novel. Um, the natural history, the human history, all of those elements that make a place. You've certainly created places that will live in many people's memory. We've been speaking with Charles Fraser. His new novel is 13 Moons. Thank you for joining me, Charles. Thank you. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.